So today we're going to continue with our series, Eight Essential Elements of the Biblical Christian Gospel. And we're really trying to address in a very long series uh, what they call today's abridged or condensed or reductionist gospel, where kind of how we preach the gospel is we hit a few highlights of the gospel and miss much of the content and meat of it, and therefore, frankly, inadvertently twist the meaning. So we've been uh, on this series. Today is the 43rd lesson. We are on element five of the eight elements. And I'm not going to review that much other than to let you know the eight elements are listed in uh, Roman numeral one. And they're on our podcast under Sunday School. And you can get out, well, you can, at the end of this outline is an email address that you can send and request uh, uh, a uh, any of the outlines or all of the outlines, and I'll have uh, I'll forward your email to Stephen Leopold and have him do it. <laughs> have him send them to you. So, uh, um, we've been looking at element five now for twenty, let's see, four weeks or so, and uh, we looked for about eight weeks at what the normally would be taught in a theology class on on the on the study of Christ, which is called Christology. And then we've looked at, for about 14 weeks, the ministry of Jesus, not focused on that much, but something we need to focus on because, in essence, what, John, what Jesus says in John's 13 through 16, which is John's account of the Last Supper, in those four chapters, Jesus basically says, I'm going to keep doing the same things after I go to the Father, and I'm going to do it by the person and ministry of the Holy Spirit acting in the same way in your life that he acted in my life. I've given you a pattern of what it means to be filled with the Spirit, what it means to be on a mission from God, and you, your ministry and life should look like mine. And that should be true not only individually of us, we think in radical individualistic terms, but that should be true of communities of Christians. And so, you know, like people say today, well, I got it all at this or that point of my Christian experience. And I always say, if you have it all, let me see it all. <laughs> Like, if your ministry looks a lot like Jesus, uh, in, in Acts 10.38, Peter was talking to the Cornelius and the Gentiles, and he sums up Jesus' ministry by saying, you know, that is, you've heard about, you're, you know about, Jesus of Nazareth, a man anointed by the Holy Spirit who went about doing good and healing all those who are oppressed from the devil. Would that be a good summation of your life? Would that be a good summation of what we do here at Grace Christian Fellowship? If that's not a good summation of what you do in your church, I would suggest you find a different church. So, um, you know, we're living in a time where very few churches even cast out demons, yet we're living in a culture where we are clearly a much more ungodly culture than the culture that Jesus ministered in. And he spent at least 25% of his ministry on casting out demons. But we do very little of that today. So, you know, we say we're Bible-believing Christians, but are we really? And uh, we're going to challenge our thinking on a few things today. Today I want to focus in on, on perhaps in some ways, uh, I'm calling this the linchpin of our lives, perhaps the mo most important doctrine of Christology of all is the resurrection. And the resurrection was a big part of the message of the gospel 
in the New Testament. In fact, I, I defy you to find any gospel presentations, whether we're talking about Paul's presentation to the Athenians, Peter's presentation at the day of Pentecost, or whatever, you can't find any presentations of the gospel that don't present the resurrection. Okay, so that uh, the resurrection is a huge, huge part of the message. So let's look at Roman numeral four, about halfway down the first page, and we're going to start with some scriptural priorities. The first thing I want to remind us of is a lot of people know this already. We've covered it oh, 10 or 12 times in the last several years is there's a concept called the locus classicus. And the locus classicus is the idea that any doctrine of Scripture will have at least one place that's its primary focus. And so if you're going to study this idea or that idea in Scripture, you would put that in the center of your thinking. And then there's other Scriptures that speak about that idea more in a more peripheral manner. And so you might put those like a building a collage or something around the outside. And then you step back and you look at the whole picture against the background drop of stepping back and looking at the whole message of the whole Bible. And that's one of the reasons we do biblical studies so badly today is very few people read the whole Bible and think about major themes of the whole Bible, and you must to be able to see the Bible at all. You've got, you know, we can't see, the problem is today we can't see the trees uh, through the forest because we can't actually see the forest. And so we're studying, the, you know, and it, we're blocked by this or that individual tree, but we don't know where it belongs in the whole forest. And we really kind of need to see the whole forest first. So in terms of the resurrection, uh, I basically want to give us some of, the, some of the primary places to start. And we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 15 which is the chapter on the implications of the resurrection. But here's something you need to remember, is the epistles give us explanation for what the gospels give us in the book of Acts, the actual historical occurrence. And we have a faith that's rooted in the historical occurrence. That's very important. The, the difference between Christianity and all their faiths is we have a God who's outside and above history. He's outside and above time. He's outside and above the time-space continuum. And he created time for his redemptive purposes and his uh, kingdom purposes, his eternal decree. And he, dec and he created us subject to a time-space continuum, and he created us finite when he is outside and above time in infinite. And he knows the end from the beginning, because their time doesn't exist to him. So the essence of our faith is this God that we're talking about has invaded history in the creation, in, uh, the, in the incarnation, in, in the, what we're studying, in the sending of his son. And so the first place to start, uh, if you're going to study the resurrection, is the four gospel accounts of the resurrection. So I, I took the, even though I, I uh, we had, Holy Week is still uh, two weeks away, I guess, yes. Uh, Holy Week starts two weeks from today, and Easter is three weeks from today. Um, traditionally, Christians give a lot of attention to the scriptures on this handout called Our Lord's Passion, Scriptures for Meditation During Holy Week and Beyond. Uh, and at the top, I give, I'm listing 22 chapters of scripture 
that are the locus classicus of the resurrection. If you want to study, the, uh, and really of the death, burial, and resurrection, the, the, the Garden of Gethsemane, the passion, the trial, the betrayal, uh, the illegal trial, all, the suffering, uh, all the way through to the resurrection, these are the places to start. And if you're not intimately familiar with these 22 chapters of Scripture, then as we're going to see today, your faith is worthless, according to the Apostle Paul. You might as well get drunk and get high and party, is what he's saying. You might as well, you have no reason to live if you're not living for these things. So, like 2 Corinthians 5 says, he died so that they who live might live not for themselves anymore, but for him who loved us and gave himself up for us. The essence of getting set free is that you were bound, you were a slave, you were captive to living for yourself. And so much of your thinking and your perspective and the motivations and the attitudes and your loves and hates and likes and dislikes were centered in me, 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 me. Me, myself, and I was your trinity. And he came to set you free from the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I so that you could have your life centered around the real trinity. And that's the essence of what he's doing in, in saving you. And one of the things you should boldly do as a Christian is say, God, help me see where I relate to jobs, bosses, marriage, spouses, raising kids, sports, hobbies, where me is still the center. And set me free from such narrow bondage. Because that's a tight, very tight, constrained cage that he wants to set you free to what, into what the Bible calls the glorious liberty of the sons of God. In the Psalms, call that a very, he has put me in a wide path, a broad path, because Christ is the broad path that you must strive to enter the narrow way. Ah, ironic. So, uh, I hope we get that. Uh, you know, these scriptures are no extra charge. And uh, I hope you'll spend some time in the next few weeks reading these and meditating on them, studying them. Part of what I do every Lent, every East, Holy Week, every Easter season is I go over these scriptures again and again. And I, you know, if I, I get alone like Christ, you know, if you don't have a place where you can get alone and there's no cell phone and there's no beeper and there's, people still have beepers, <laughs> probably not. Uh, do they still have those? Uh, <laughs> Uh, where there's no way you can, there's, your, your mom doesn't know where you are, that's especially important, uh, <laughs> you know, where you can get along with God. You know, that's what Jesus means by get in, go and pray in secret. Go into your inner room. Do you have an inner room? Could be in your car in the park somewhere. One of the best inner rooms I ever had is I used to uh, drop my kids off at school at 7 a.m., and then I used to go sit outside the Y downtown, and from 7 a.m. till 10 a.m., I would spend time with God reading the Bible. In the wintertime, about every 10 or 15 minutes, I'd turn the car on for a little bit and warm it back up a little. And then uh, turn it back off after a minute or two. And, uh, and you know, and then I would tell myself, I got to quit studying at 10 and get in and get my workout done. But sometimes it would be 10, 30, 11, uh, it's, and so forth. And oh, well, you know, 
and then I'd be like, I got to get this workout over and get to work by one o'clock. <laughs> one nice thing about owning the company, you can go to work whatever time you want. But uh, of course, it will affect how much money you make. But the true riches were spending time with the Lord. Get alone with God. If you, if you don't have times where you break down and weep over these things, something's really wrong with your experience with God. Really. I'm not trying to lay any bondage on you, but say, like, how can, how can I think about these things? I have this old cassette tape that's meditations on the, what they call the Stations of the Cross. And there, are, you know, there was one of the, one of the meditations was about uh, how often he, you know, the guy speaking said, how often I have gone like the crowds did from, you know, on, on the beginning of Holy Week, they're crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he, you know, who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, Hosanna in the highest, and it's such an intense worship. You know, you know, one of the things you'll always know when you're touching real worship is the religious people really be pissed off about it. They hate real worship. And so, like, the scribes and Pharisees are like, you know, Master, don't you see that the people are worshiping you? You've got to stop this. And he goes, I tell you, if they stop, even the stones will cry out. This is a worship meeting, and it's and I'm declaring myself king by riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, and there's no way you're going to stop this worship with all your religion. I don't care. And so uh, those same people, four or five days later, were the ones yelling, crucify him, crucify him. Same exact people. And if you haven't seen that in yourself... I'd say you've progressed very little in this Christian life if you don't realize that there's times where I've been the one that nailed him to the cross. There's times where I was the crowd yelling, crucify him. And uh, so I just encourage you that there's no way in 45 minutes, like I don't try to teach you anything more than what you need to get along with God and get more out of the, your times with God by yourself. Read the Bible and make it your number one love in life. My wife won't mind my saying, I love reading my Bible much more than I love her. And she loves reading my, her Bible more than she loves spending time with me. So, anyway, so please use this. Again, we throw it in, no extra charge. Let's get into this. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 uh, through 8, he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, or brethren in the NASB, of the gospel I preach to you, which also you receive, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Notice the, the, that's the, one of the doctrines of our culture is people say, well, what, when did you get saved? And that shows they don't understand much about what's called soteriology or the doctrines of salvation. Because guess what? You were saved before time eternity when God declared in his eternal decree that you were going to be part of his family. And you were saved uh, when God clothed Adam and Eve with, with a, a animal skin and foreshadowed the coming of Christ. And you were saved when God slew animals and walked between them in Genesis 18. And, and when God provided himself to be the ram uh, in you know Genesis 22 and and you were saved 2,000 years ago in the death, burial, and ministry of Christ. And you were saved when you came to know it for yourself 
in the past whatever number of years for your, you. And you're being saved the more you're being set up. You know, because salvation is being born again is a one-time thing. Receiving Christ is a, is a place up. But being saved is actually a, is all of the above. And so every, you are being saved. So the gospel by which you are being saved, not the, you know, it's not for a one-time sinner's only thing. It's for every day. If you hold fast the word I preach to you every day, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered as of first importance. We're going to come back to that scripture in a little bit. What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Now, Paul is not saying that he received this when Jesus appeared to him on the road to uh, Damascus in Acts chapter 9. But he received this because this was the message of the early church, which he heard from the early church himself. And the Bible uses these words received and delivered or handed down, some translations say. And that's what we do in catechism class. That's what we're doing today. We faithfully teach the doctrines the apostles taught. I'm not looking to give you something modern and new. In accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Did you know that when we say the creed, the reason it says in accordance with the scriptures is, was because it's a quote from this verse. And because these were actually creedal statements that they said on the Lord's day, beginning with the resurrection, beginning with Pentecost, all churches always recited the creeds, and this was the first creed. And there's documentary evidence. Even evangelicals like Lee Strobel point out that we have documents that date back to 40 A.D. that show that the early churches recited this as part of their Lord's Day worship. And they considered it a huge, you know, today we go to church about 40 out of 50 Sundays. And as long as the sun's, you know, it's not raining or snowing or our kid doesn't have a soccer match or, you know, the sun's not in our eyes or, you know, whatever. But that's not how the early Christians approached it. And so uh, this, this word, he appeared, appears four times. Why? Because every fact will be confirmed by two or three witnesses. Notice that he appeared to Peter, called Cephas in this verse. He appeared to the twelve. Second witness. The second witness is a group of people. <laughs> the third witness is another group appeared. Then he appeared to more than 500 people. Uh, then he appeared to James, I guess five times. Do I have, uh, and then he appeared last of all to Paul. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about evidential apologetics in a minute, but so we'll get back to that word appeared. But, but he appeared to all these people, and it's one of the most well-documented facts in history. Because guess what? When you get put on trial for it, if you don't really believe it, that's when you say, I was just kidding. But they didn't say, I was just kidding. They died for it. So, 1 Corinthians 14 
15, 14, and 17 says this. Here's the, one of the implications of the resurrection. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, void, futile, and your faith is in vain, void, futile. And if, uh, by the way, the reason I do this other words is uh, vain is the ESV, void is NASB, and futile is the New King James. Uh, no, wait, ESV and, I'm sorry, ESV and NASB are void. Uh, New King James is futile and uh, so forth. We're, I forget the basic order, but that I kind of put them in order. Con- compare that to when in Ecclesiastes when he says futility, futility, or vanity of vanity. Because Ecclesiastes, he's coming from a perspective like if there's no if there's no relationship with God. I actually tell people this all the time. People, you know, like don't like my approach because it's like sharpen the sword right to the, get to the point. Uh, but you know. As, as you hopefully know by now, what we're up against in America today is, is, you know, unsharp swords lead to hard hearts. Sharp swords lead to soft hearts. And um, I tell people all this, to, you know, like, you need to settle this. Because the point is, if, you know, like people will say, well, I got to quit drugs or whatever. Like, first, you need to settle this thing about Jesus. Because there's no point in quitting drugs if there's no Jesus. You might as well get high. You might as well do whatever. There's no purpose for living if you're not living for Christ. If this isn't something that consumes you, then there is something else that is consuming you. And Paul is saying, like, life is worthless apart from the love of God and the pursuit of God, which is centered in the resurrection. You know, there uh, used to be a song, what was that, Bill Gaither Trio used to have a song, Because He Lives, I Can Face Tomorrow. Because He Lives, All Fear Is Gone. Because He Lives. Yeah, because He Lives, everything. 1 Corinthians 15, 20, and 22, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So that concept, I'm only touching on some concepts in 1 Corinthians 15, but that concept, for an Adam all die, so also... Can, Here's the, the principle of the first fruits in the Bible is the first fruits represent the whole. So we know because he rose that all those who are in him will rise. When you tithe, you're saying, these are the first fruits. I'm giving this 10% so I can acknowledge that God gave me life in the first place, that he's the one who gave me creativity and ability to work, and that all of the money is his, and I'm going to steward it all for his kingdom and glory. Not the American doctrine that you give 10% to God and the other is 90, 90% is for you so you can be 90% God of your own life and keep God as only 10% God of your life. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's, that's how we relate to it in America. But you give the tithe so you can say, like, it's all yours, God. How do you, what do you want me to do with this 90%? Do you want me to go to college? Do you want me to save for my kids' college? Do you want me to buy, invest gradually in a Christian library? How, do you want me to give to the poor? What, what, it's yours, Lord. That's what the first fruits mean. That's why the gospel, uh, the, the New Testament over and over talks about the gospel that has been preached in the whole world. And you'd be like, wait a minute, they haven't even discovered the Western Hemisphere yet. But they had begun to preach it in the first fruits of all the nations, so it's inevitable that all the nations will be filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the seed. It's a done deal. 
as truly as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of God. There will be bodies of Christians in every locality on this planet before Christ comes back, living a biblical New Testament restored church way of life. Now that's a vision we're fighting for. Not like, NEM, NEM, it's going to get darker and darker. Oh my God, I hope God comes and saves me before it's too dark. I don't really don't want to live for that vision. That's the implications of the resurrection. It's finished. He won. And, there, and he, it's, he's just going to keep growing and growing and growing his kingdom. And greater works than he d- did shall the church do. Because he did them through, because of the incarnation, he limited his works to, his, to one person in one locality. But we're not going to do greater works in the sense that they'll be like, oh, wow, that's even a more amazing miracles than Christ did. How can you get more amazing than he created wine out of water? You know, wine takes some, if you know anything about viticulture, takes some good, you need to know a lot about aging. And the best wine is not, doesn't happen by chance, is all I'm saying. You know, he rose Lazarus from the dead, the widow's son, etc. He healed the eyes of those who were born blind. So in what way are we going to do greater works? We're going to do greater works in the sense that he limited his works to his incarnate body. And now his body is incarnate in local Christian bodies all over this planet. And he can be raising someone from the dead in Kenya while he's proclaiming the gospel in Hyderabad. While he's setting the captives free in Dayton. While he's working, and you name it, even in San Francisco or some ungodly place. <laughs> you, know, you know, like name the five or six most ungodly cities you can think of in New Orleans or Miami or whatever. He, he's, even, he's even triumphing there. And he will restore his church and he will bring the light to bear. Um, I love in Matthew 21 where Jesus describes. Uh, confronts the, the Sadducees and he says, as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read? Now, a lot of people are surprised by this. I tell people this sometimes when I'm having Bible studies. If you've grown up evangelical, you probably don't know that much about what's called mainstream Catholicism or mainstream Protestantism or the mainstream Eastern Orthodox Church. But in, the, in what they call the mainstream Christianity today, the vast, like somewhere between 85 and 90% of the ministers don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe the scripture's inerrant. They don't believe that Jesus healed people. They believe all of that is stories that are good stories. That's one of the reasons why the evangelicals have played into their hands by, by changing catechism into Sunday school because now we tell Bible stories. And kids are brought up to believe it's just a story. Is you know, and we have pictures of Noah and the ark that don't look very realistic, so we think it's just a little kid's thing. So uh, we've replaced, you know, biblical content with stories, and we don't even make clear that it's historical narrative. That it's factual. So Jesus confronts that whole mentality and he says you know uh, God is not the God of the dead but of the living that's why in Luke 24 he tells his own disciples when they come, when they go to the grave on Easter Sunday he's the first thing he says is why are you looking for the living one among the dead 
It's amazing how many Christians want go to dead churches and they, want to, and they think they're going to find the living one there. You're not going to find the living one among people who are dead. Find the most alive, zealous, radical Christians you can find. Because that's where you're going to find the living one. Acts 1.3, he presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs. Uh, King James, I believe, says infallible. New King James, or no, uh, I'm sorry, New American Standard says infallible. Convincing is ESV, I think. I, I don't know. I can't remember the order now. Young's literal as certain, etc. You know, uh, so let's deal with this a little bit. It's in apologetics. There's, you know, some people. There's a, a really good book that's on the back here. I've given you a couple books on the right on the top of the second page. The last one listed there is a, a book called Five Views on Apologetics. And really, those five views, the differences between a couple of them are so small. I would say there's two to three major views of apologetics. But one is what's called epistemological or presuppositional. They can think of themselves as two camps, but I don't think they're very much different. And then one is called evidential. And evidential apologetics are evidences for the resurrection, right? Evidences that Christianity is true. Evidences for creation. Stuff like that. I love that kind of stuff. But you need to take that with one grain of salt. Here's Always think about the whole scripture. So turn with me to Luke 16. I forgot to put this in the outline, so here it is, no extra charge. Um, I'm getting too old for this stuff. So, let's see. So, in, starting in verse 19, now there was a certain rich man and habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, uh, gaily living in splendor every day. Now, what do you mean by gaily living today? And a certain poor man named Lazarus was laid at his feet, at his, at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table, besides even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now it came about that the poor man died, and he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, the rich man lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and he saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. So he's got a teeny bit of humility, but obviously not very much because he's still ordering Lazarus around. He still thinks of himself as I'm the Lord and, and Lazarus is, you know, my servant. Send Lazarus. The, the, maybe Lazarus has other things he's doing. Uh, Send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue and fry him in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received good things and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he's being comforted and you're in agony. And beside all this, there's a, a, a great chasm fixed between us in order that those who wish to come over here may not be able to come and that none may cross over from there to here. Then I beg of you, Father, send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers. Warn them not to come here. And Jesus says this, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear, hear them. But he said, no, Father, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But Jesus said, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. So here's something you, that presuppositional or epistemological apologetics people always point out. You know what? Miracles don't necessarily turn people back to God. 
You know, one of our books of the year a few years back was When Heaven Invades Earth by Bill Johnson. He has a whole chapter on cities that have seen great miracles in the scripture and otherwise that have not repented. Evidence that people rose, that Jesus rose from the dead. Do you know what? In a court of law, I love courts of law. I love to study law. And I love all, I mean, the only kind of TV shows I watch are lawyer shows, even though most of them, well, some of them have good writers and good issues. Very few. But there's a few that have that are pretty decent. But, um, you know, the, the, the resurrection of Christ would stand up in a court of law. It's one of the most well-documented facts in history. Yet, that you need to be prepared for it. That ne- won't necessarily make Christians out of anyone. Now, I would say, it, like what I do when I'm having Bible studies with people, is I look for how much flow of the Holy Spirit is there is. That's something you always want to discern. Like, remember when the woman touched Jesus and she said, if I could just touch the friends of his cloak, uh, I'll be healed. And like this whole crowd is bumping against him. But when she touched him, understanding from God the Father by the Spirit who he was, power went out from him. So when I'm having, you know, breakfast with people, Bible studies at Wright State, whatever, I I listen for who the Lord is working in. And who hears the word as if it's the word of God and not of men. Like Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, I thank God that you heard the, the word that we spoke to you for what it is, the word of God and not of men. But other people are still blinded by unbelief in the God of this world, and they hear you intellectually, skeptically, with doubt and unbelief in their heart, and especially if they've been brought up in traditions of the church that don't have miracles and speaking in tongues and casting out demons and, and these kind of things, they, they don't have a heart to hear. Now, that doesn't mean I don't keep praying that their heart will soften and, and that they'll be able to hear someday what you have to say. Many people have been brought up defensive. They're very insecure. They can't hear because they have been brought up in a way that they're defensive all the time. Sometimes you just need to back off until they can hear without being defensive. But, uh, but Jesus said things that some of the audience heard and some didn't. Remember when God spoke audibly over Jesus in the Gospel of John? And some people said, did it thunder? That's just the way it always is. Some people can be in the midst of dynamic worship on fire Christians, and they just don't get it at all. Other people will understand, wow, God is in this place. And what you want to do is discern. Now, with that, I'm all for evidential apologetics. To you know, the again, the, the presuppositional people would say that won't cause people to repent, and they'll point to Luke 16. However, the problem is you have to re- rightly divide all of Scripture. And if you go through, I think I have some of them listed here. Look at uh, second page under Acts 4.33. I have a short list of, of CF means compare. Acts 2.31, Acts 4.1-2, Acts 17.18, Acts 17.32, Acts 23.6, Acts 23.8, Acts 24.15, and Acts 24.21. All of those, the apostles declared the resurrection is part of their message. And they said, we are witnesses, and there's evidence. The Holy Spirit is bearing witness to you that what we're saying is true, and we saw him. And we're willing to risk our lives to say it. 
So to divide, to be honest, um, I'm all for uh, evidences that that of the resurrection, but I need you need to understand that that's just part of the equation. Does everyone get that? Now Acts four thirty three says this. But by the way, there's some very good books there, and I put uh, on a few of these books that I listed today. I put the Kindle price is only two ninety nine, so you can. Uh, Entice you to, because these are some of my, the, the ones that are Kindle 299 are some of my most favorite books. Um, Acts 4.33, I love, you know, the one thing nice about Kindle is if the guys are old dead guys and nobody has the rights to them anymore, then they can print them for anywhere from 99 cents to 2.99 because, you know, they don't have to pay for the paper or the copyrights. So, uh, anyway, Who Moved the Stone is a fantastic book. You got to read that. I better move on. So, uh, with great power, the apostles were giving testimony or witness in some translations to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and grace grace was upon them all. Now, I listed two scriptures there, but there's around 20 scriptures in the New Testament that basically tell us this: the Christians bear witness to what we know and have experienced from God, including that we've experienced. If you're a Christian, then you you haven't maybe seen Him face to face. But Jesus said, to, you know, blessed are those who believe, who have not seen. You've experienced the living Christ, or you wouldn't be a real Christian. You'd just be religious. You'd just be attending church. That's the difference. So if you've experienced the resurrected Christ, and you have the power of the Spirit in your life, you can bear witness to how he's changed your life. I once was blind, but now I see and the Holy Spirit will always bear witness to that also. Now, one of, now, to the degree you learn to be stay filled with the Holy Spirit and grow in the anointing of the Holy Spirit and yielded to the Holy Spirit, to that degree, your fruitfulness will grow. Because it's the Holy Spirit who does the work. I miss our, uh, Roy and I were having Bible studies on Thursdays, and now he has to work on Thursday morning, so hopefully we can find, talk today about finding another time. But like one of the things I like about our Bible studies is the Holy Spirit's doing stuff while we're having our Bible studies. And frankly, I love Roy a lot, but I could take or leave Bob Evans. Good thing. I like it a lot better since Roy usually buys. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, it, it really brought Bob Evans way up in my mind when Roy started picking up the check. But, um, you know, uh, but what I really like is the Holy Spirit is moving among us. Right? So that's important. Um, I wish I had more time. There, the women, here's some evidences, some things you need to know about the resurrection. Read some of these books like More Than a Carpenter. They're really easy books. The Case for Christ, Who Moved the Stone, The Reason for God by Tim Keller. They will build your faith, and they will equip you to be able to share your faith. You don't equip yourself. But here's some things you need to know. The reason the Gospels record that women saw Jesus first is because women saw Jesus first. If they were actually fabricating anything, they would have not said that because in the Hebrew world and in the Roman courts, a woman's testimony was not considered valid. So there can be only one logical explanation that the Scriptures record the women saw first is that the women saw him first. And that... God in his sovereignty chose to appear to women first. Probably because the men would needed more help or something. I don't know. <laughs> Who knows why. 
secondly, they wouldn't record that they were doubters. If they, because if they, if it were, if they were fabricating anything, I don't know about you, but I, I have this uh, little temptation where I like to embellish stories, and you know, like we'll tell stories of something we did when we were teenagers or whatever, and I always make myself look a little better in the story. <laughs> Never done that, have you, Bradbury? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, you know, like it's, it's almost like Bradbury's telling you a story, and all of a sudden this thing goes. Bing, 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 writer's embellishment. No, <laughs> you, know, you know, we all do that, but they wouldn't, if, if it wasn't true, they wouldn't have recorded what knuckleheads they were. Most of you don't share stories with me about like, yeah, this guy was going to beat me up, and boy, he really beat me up because I was a wimp. <laughs> <You know? laughs> praise, praise God. <laughs> uh, so... Hey, uh, can someone go check a little kid just went a couple, just make sure they're being watched by an adult. They are, okay. So I can only see like, because of the windows, I can only see like their little legs run by. Uh, as long as somebody's watching them. Uh, it wouldn't, you know, they stay dedicated unto death. 1 Corinthians 15 declares that 500 people saw him resurrected. The reason God in his sovereignty had first the Judaizers and then later the Roman Empire come against the church is because it's one of the great testimonies that none of them back down. There aren't any recorded examples of someone saying, nope, just kidding, didn't really see it. I could have been hallucinating. I don't know. All of them died for it. I don't know about you, but I uh, think about starting a church in Nairobi, and I think about starting a church in Hyderabad, and, and one in Xenia. But I never think that much about starting a church in Saudi Arabia, because I'm in no hurry to get killed. <laughs> I pray that God will raise you up. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. You know, uh, Lord, give that assignment to somebody else. Um. Hope to God will be obedient if he sends us. Uh, so I would put, who would diss for a lie? That was my ghetto thing coming through. No, uh, who would die for a lie? No, it should have been, that was a typo. Who would disrespect you for a lie? No. The documents, I don't have time to go into this except to say that's a great book to read on this. If you don't, people always go, oh, the Bible is just written by men. It's no more. Listen, anyone who says that is uneducated. That's just the way it is. That doesn't mean you hate him or that you mock them for it, or that you even point that out necessarily. But what you help them see is we read the Iliad and the Odyssey, right? In high schools, they used to read that. <laughs> now, no, hopefully you've heard of it. <laughs> and it uh, used to be a foundational thing in, of Western education that you read that in high school. And you know what? It was written in the 8th century B.C. And the earliest manuscript we have of it is from the 800 A.D., 1,600 years later. But nobody doubts that it actually happened. Now, there was a movement where people doubted, and frankly, uh, I forget the guy's name starts with a T, famous secular uh, archaeologist actually used the Elite in the Odyssey to find Troy and prove that Troy actually existed and the story and, and the historical content is all true and so forth. But the truth is, uh, the 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 documents of the, of the Bible, we have more documentary evidence by over a hundred times as much more than ancient, any other ancient thing. If you believe there really was a Socrates, Bill and Ted, uh, or there really was a Plato, or there really was Euripides, or, you know, Agamemnon's plays, or, or the play of Agamemnon, 
uh, Aeschylus or whoever, you know, you believe that on a much greater leap of faith than you would believe the New Testament documents. We have thousands of manuscripts, some of which date from before 50 A.D., parts of New Testament manuscripts. And I wish I could develop that. Develop that for yourself. There's so much evidence. Uh, i got to move on because I at least want to make this point, that it's the linchpin of our lives as of first importance. You could say, it, you could say it's the foundation, it's structural, it's load-bearing, central prime. Now, if anybody's done much remodeling, which I have, anytime you're thinking about remodeling, yesterday I had a long meeting with our carpenter thinking we could build a hallway here, we could do this here. And we thought about, we just decided to have like an absurd brainstorming session. <laughs> and we thought, well, could we move the walls out two feet? <laughs> no, we can't because the, <laughs> there's a load-bearing thing that has to happen. When you remodel, you have to actually always ask, like, can I cut into this? without causing the whole thing to fall down. And if you're not sure, don't cut into it. <laughs> so the, the bottom line with Christianity is if you cut into the resurrection, the whole thing falls down. So I, I really thought of the word linchpin, even though it's an extra biblical word, but it's a good metaphor, I think. Uh, a linchpin is a pin inserted through the end of an axle tree to keep the wheel on. In other words... I remember the first bike I ever worked on was when I was about five or six. I was fixing a tricycle, and the wheel had come off. And so I think probably my brother or somebody said, look, the linchpin has come out. You need to get a new linchpin and put it in there so the wheel, because the wheel kept falling off whenever I was triking down the driveway, <laughs> you know, uh, and, which was not good. That wasn't the desired goal. So... Um, a linchpin is something that holds various elements of a complicated structure together. So whatever metaphor you want to use, I've given you a bunch of scriptures. Hebrews 6, 1 and 2 calls the resurrection one of the foundations of our faith. Romans 1, uh, 1 through 5 says one of the meanings of the resurrection is that Jesus Christ was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Right? He's in, you know, like people who say he was a good moral teacher like Muhammad or, or Buddha or something just haven't looked at the evidence. Now, again, we don't mock them for, you know, you don't go, well, what a jerk or what a stupid or something. That's not good. But the truth is, it's not a very educated opinion. Because Jesus Christ is the only person in human history that there's any evidence put forth that he was resurrected from the dead and that he resurrected himself. There's other people who got his rose from the dead, but they didn't rise themselves. So, vanity, vanity, and kind of I'll kind of end here by just saying, like, if you know, if you're not well established in these things, get well established in these things. You, you, otherwise, you're going to church is foolish. You're living a godly life is foolish. There's actually no purpose to live. In, you, in, in one of the problems we face because of the nature of our sin nature is what sanctification is about is we are, God is saving us in such a way as that we're not living a dual life. And every one of us as Christians lives some degree of dual life. And what we're trying to grow in grace in is to close that gap between what is true and what we live. And part of how you close the gap is to know that you know that you know that you know that he rose from the dead. Amen.